The New Testament reading is from Colossians, chapter 2, verses 6 to 23. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, Not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. This is God's word. Well, good evening, good evening. Uh, Let me have my welcome. Uh, My name is Matt Fuller. I hope you've had a great afternoon in the sunshine or watching rugby. Magnificent. One more than the other, that probably depends upon your taste in such things. But uh, great to see you. And uh, this is, uh, uh, in one sense, the the heart of the letter, in many ways, of the letter of Colossians uh, this evening. So uh, it's important stuff. We need God's help. Let's pray as we begin. Our Father, we've sung already this evening of the wonderful privileges we have in you, that the Lord Jesus Christ lives in us and we live in him. 
That's an extraordinary truth for each and every believer, and we pray we'd understand a little more of that, more of how wonderful it is to be united to Christ, so that we wouldn't be in any sense deceived and drawn away from him. And we pray this so that our lives would be lifelong, honoring to the the praise of his name. Amen. Now, uh, hopefully none of you have ever had the experience of being kidnapped. I don't want to be insensitive if you have, but... um, Hopefully, none of you had that. I mean, for me as a child, it was one of those things that bizarrely I lived in fear of. I one night uh, at home, I don't know how old I was, eight or something, sneakily snuck downstairs and watched a film on TV, uh, and the babysitter wasn't paying attention. Or so I, watched it. I don't know how it happened, but I watched this film on TV, and it was about a kidnap. It was very miserable because the, uh, the kidnapper buried the, the young girl in a coffin. It had a pump and a light, and, but to be buried underground, and the whole film was the police detectives trying to work out what had happened. But age eight, I just shouldn't have seen that film. Film. And I had nightmares for about two years afterwards. And uh, repeatedly, my dad would come and get me in the middle of the night. I'd be kicking and screaming. I'd turn myself around, and my head was wet at the bottom of the sheets, and I couldn't get out of the bed. And dad would have to come and take me out of my coffin. And um, it was terrible, terrible. Don't let your children watch films they're not meant to. Uh, very important. Now, um, who'd want that experience? Who'd want to be kidnapped? But really, that's what we're talking about tonight. Chapter 2, verse 8. It summarizes the, the, uh, the passage for tonight. See, that it, see to it that no one takes you captive. The word at the time was used for kidnapping of not just children, but of people you could use as slaves and sell into slavery. Be careful that you are, that see to it that no one takes you captive. How might they do that? Through olive and deceptive so, excuse me, hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition, the basic principles of this world, rather than Christ. Don't be taken captive. That's the heart of what we're looking at tonight. Uh, that's the point of what we're looking at tonight. Now, we've said all along that uh, before, uh, the, the verses 6 and 7, which we had read, in one sense, they're the very good, best summary of the whole book, verses 6 and 7. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Continue with Christ. That's the book of Colossians. Continue with him. Don't be kidnapped. Don't be deceived. Don't be distracted. Continue with the Lord Jesus Christ. Just because it is such a useful summary of the book, let me just dwell on that and make a couple of points before we really jump in tonight. Uh, The first is this. Do notice in verses 6 and 7 that Christianity is, if I can put it this way, it's both personal and propositional. Uh, it's personal, we get that, but propositional. It's built upon certain truths, objectively, that you cannot just ignore. It is both, and it's meant to be both. Now, people tend to drift off in one direction or another. So some love the propositional elements of Christianity, and some will say, uh, forthrightly, I believe in the incarnation, and I believe in substitutionary atonement, and I believe in justification by faith. Brilliant. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Those are wonderful truths, but they are truths about a man. So much better, probably, if you want to to express it. I believe in the incarnation of God, in the man, Jesus Christ, and I live for him. I believe in penal substitution, that Jesus on the cross, the God-man, Jesus Christ, died in my place to take penalty that was due to me. I believe in him and what he did, and so on and so forth. So some people are a little bit wonkish and just love the doctrinal statements. Well, be careful. It's, it's 
It's not just that. If that's you, buy whatever music Simon was recommended and sing it in the shower to yourself because you remind yourself, or do whatever it takes, but remind yourself you do have a relationship with him. It's the dominant one since word of these passages. We live in him. We're united to him. So it is personal, the Christian faith. But no less than that, it is also propositional. So verse 6, just as then as you receive Christ, Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. But the parallel, verse 7, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught. So you can't just drift off into a sort of spiritual whimsy. Yes, well, you think that happened on the cross. I think that happened. What does it matter as long as we all love Jesus? Yeah, but what Jesus are you loving? Are you loving Jesus as he's explained himself, as he's revealed himself, or are you making up a Jesus of whimsy? Jesus for me is a little, ooh, whatever he is. Well, your ooh to me sounds, ooh, and it doesn't quite work. There's an objective revelation about Jesus Christ. The Christian faith is both personal. It's him, but it's propositional. He has told us what he's done, and we need to be guided in our relationship with him by what he's taught in the scriptures. It's both. If you want to keep going, if you want to keep growing as a Christian, relate to him personally, the man who is God, but do so through the, you know, understand him through his revelation. Christianity is personal and propositional. And notice a healthy Christian life also, this is all uh, we haven't got going yet. Um, Notice also that Christian is meant a normal healthy Christian life is, end of verse 7, overflowing with thankfulness. That is a key element of growth. Thankfulness. Yes, I I seem to have uh, uh, matured quite happily as a Christian. My understanding of the Christian faith is, is much better than it was a few years ago. Are you thankful? Are you thankful? That's a mark of Christian maturity, overflowing with thankfulness. That's, if you haven't got a thankful Christian life, something is malfunctioning. It's not as it's meant to be. Overflowing with thankfulness. And in the letter of Colossians, it's a great uh, antidote or offensive weapon against the false teaching. So we had it back in um, chapter 1 and verse 12. This is what Paul prays for them, that they would always be End of verse 11, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and so on. Thankfulness. There's a sense in which thankfulness is the great anti- excuse me, antibiotic of the Christian life full stop. I mean, it can cure all sorts of known diseases and ills in the Christian life, thankfulness. But it's certainly here one weapon against false teaching. If you are thankful in your Christian life, you won't get distracted by nonsense They would want to kidnap you and take you away. So just two little things before we even get going. They're free. Uh, No extra cost. Okay, the Christian life, it's personal, propositional, and it's marked by thankfulness. There's a lack of... Well, we'll come back to that. Okay, let's get going. Verse 8, then, is a summary of the passage. Uh, uh, And let's jump in and look at that. Verse 8 again. Uh, See to it then that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. Now be careful here. Hollow and deceptive philosophy is not, Paul hasn't got a downer against all philosophy. I remember 
childishly as a university student. I had one philosophy lecturer who hated Christianity. He was a sort of caricature of a philosopher, came in for our tutorials, dressed in black, head to foot, with three cups of hardcore coffee lined up and chain-smoked his way through the tutorial just on and on. Um, probably not allowed to do that these days. He probably didn't even keep... Well, allowed to do it in those days, probably, but he didn't care. He was just a caricature of a philosopher, and he hated Christianity. And uh, I remember quoting to him, well, look, what you need to understand is that I must not be taken captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. <laughs> I mean, that was useless on almost every level. I don't think that was going to persuade him of anything. But also it's a misreading of the verse because what Paul is saying here is, be careful of, well, see that no one takes you captive through deceptive philosophy, which, what? which depends on human tradition at the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So be careful of a teaching that is not built upon Jesus Christ, but worldliness, accommodating to the world, and basic principles. That's a sort of pagan-influenced mysticism. Literally, the basic principles of the world at the time, well, that's fire, water, earth. So it's a sort of paganism, really. What are the stars doing? How are they aligning? That sort of thing. Don't be, don't be taken by, in by a mixture of cultural thought and sort of supernatural piffle. Don't be taken in by that if it's not built upon firmly, clearly the work of Jesus Christ. That's the point this evening. So Paul then asserts it positively. Look, you have all the fullness of God in Christ, verses 9 to 15. That's the positive. And then he gives the warning, 16 to 23. So don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by powerless religion. Okay, positive, negative. Sorry, it goes that way around, but let's have a good time in the first half. Okay, first then, just two points tonight. First, you have the fullness of God in Christ, 9 to 15. Breaks down into these two little ways. First then, 9 to 12, you're united to him. Verse 9. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you've been given fullness in Christ. In him. And really, that's the thought that runs throughout this little section. So you're in Christ, end of verse 10. Beginning of verse 11, you are in him. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism. Verse 13, God made you alive with him, or Christ. You're united to him if you're a believer. You're in him, with him. What does that mean? Well, all the illustrations, all the analogies break down at some point. There's a sense in which the Christian is a little bit like, and uh, this works and doesn't work, but the Christian's a little bit like a, a baby in a mother's womb. If the mo- wherever the mother goes, the baby goes. So if the mum goes shopping, the baby goes shopping. If the mum goes on an aeroplane, the baby goes on an aeroplane. If the mum goes on holiday to China, the baby goes on holiday to China. doesn't have much choice about that because the baby is in her. So it could be that this child grows up and age 18, uh, the lad says, oh, I'd love to go to China, it sounds really interesting. And the mum says, you've been. I've never been to China. Yes, you have. In me. Mm. In him. And that, you know, that kind of works and doesn't work. But in the Christian life, this repeated phrase that's in the New Testament, in him, you are in him means that what Jesus Christ has done is true of us. He's died, we died with him. He's risen again. We could say to God, I haven't died and risen again. And Jesus could say, yes, you have, in me. 
Spiritually, that is true. I don't, I don't feel very excited. I don't feel like there's much about the Christian life. Listen, you have all of God's riches in you. I don't feel very rich, but you're in me. I'm rich, and therefore you share them. Think of the analogies that the New Testament uses in particular. Uh, the Christian in Jesus Christ, he is the vine, we're the branches. We get our spiritual nourishment from him. He is the head, we're the body. We get our direction from him. He is the husband, we're the bridegroom, a bride, excuse me, collectively. We have intimacy with him. All these different pictures that the New Testament builds up are what it is to be united to him, to be in him. It's extraordinary. Verses 9 and 10 really, um, really push this very well. Verse 9. Let me ask a question to bring it out. Verse 9. How much of God has Jesus got? Verse 9. All the fullness of the deity. All of it. Okay. Question. If we're united to him, what do we have? Answer. Verse 10. You have been given fullness in Christ. The fullness of God is in Christ. If you're united to him as a Christian, you have the fullness. Wow. So imagine a husband and wife, they have a joint bank account, which you really should do if you're married. You shouldn't have, you know, you should share everything. You have a joint bank account. And uh, all of a sudden, the, 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 the husband inherits his parents' fortune of $50 billion dollars. I don't know why I've gone for dollars. I'm thinking Bill, <laughs> Bill Gates or someone like that, Warren Buffett. Anyway, I don't know how it works. $50 billion the husband inherits. The husband is wealthy. There's riches in the husband. And what does the wife have? All of them. Because she has a joint bank account with him. She is in him. They together. She is with him. Do you see how it works? That's the picture of the New Testament. The fullness of God in Christ. If you're a Christian, you're united to him. You have fullness in Jesus Christ. Oh. Paul goes on. What else does that mean? Well, verses 11 and 12, he describes the conversion of the Colossians as circumcision. That's a little bit odd. I think it's probably because the, uh, the false teachers at the time, they're encouraging circumcision as one thing you can do to be on the spiritual superhighway. So it may be that he's uh, picking up on that. We don't entirely sure know. But do you see what he's saying? Verse 11. Uh, in him you also were circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. Paul is saying... Okay, you want a circumcision that'll make you mature, that'll really change you? I'll tell you what'll really change you. Not the snip that's outward, but what happened when you were converted. That is a spiritual circumcision that deeply changes who you are. That's the one that you need, and that happened. Verse 12, when you placed your faith in, God, in the power of God. At that moment, you're united to Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection. And he says, baptism is a great symbol of that. Now, those, if you've been here, when we do the adult baptisms, we get this great big water tank and people physically go down and they die underwater. We don't, don't mishear me on that. Um, <laughs> but they rise again to new life. Baptism is a wonderful picture of what happens, happens spiritually when you're united to Jesus Christ by his spirit. You have fullness in him. 
says Paul. What more do you want? You're united to him. You have fullness of God in Christ. You're united to him. You have the riches of God. Wow. Doesn't feel that. Yeah, yeah, but it's true. It's true. So you've been united to him. And then the second element here, verses 13 to 15 of fullness, he's paid for you. Verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ, literally, by forgiving us all our sins. There's an important little connective missed out there. God made you alive with Christ by forgiving us all our sins. God took us from literally being, sorry, from spiritually being dead as a corpse and made us alive again. Wow, that's a significant difference. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. How does he do that? Uh, It's by, he forgave us our sins, verse 14, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, that may appear a little bit complicated. Let me try and take this vivid picture and make it quite simple. I think here Paul is building on a, a law court picture. I think he's probably building on Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Let me just read you that. Uh, um, Zechariah says, The Lord showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. I think Paul is building up on that picture. So it looks a bit like this. Let me just uh, try and physically work it out. Uh, I need someone to be a sinner, Nathan. And uh, you can stand in the dock, call that the dock. Uh, I need someone to be Satan, Dave. It's awful when you typecast, but you know, what can you do? If you stand the other side, uh, I'll be God. Um, health and safety reasons, you'll see that. Okay. So what takes, what takes place here? God forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. So it looks a bit like this. Here's the law court scene. At the end of time, all of us are in a law court. And uh, we stand before the judge, who is God, and there's a prosecution, and the prosecution is Satan. And we all have... Sorry, Satan. (laughs) prosecution Satan but we all have this written code that stands against us it's a bit like this so what do you stand, stand forward hold it up so people at the back can see I can't see it now um, <laughs> I your name I Nathan in this case I have let's keep it simple failed to love the Lord my God with all my heart soul mind and strength I failed to love my neighbor as myself and so it is as if at the end of time Nathan comes before the Lord and says Can I come into your heaven? Can I enter glory? And Satan says, no, he can't. Because look, God, look at this. Look at this written code. This written code says he's guilty, and therefore he belongs to me, says Satan. So Satan holds this up. Nathan says, can I come into heaven? And Satan just keeps waving this. Which and the answer is no, because there's a testimony, there's a written code. You've broken God's law, and therefore you don't deserve to get into heaven. 
So you can look sad at this point. Now, what took place upon the cross? Verse 13, end of. He forgave us all our sins. How? Having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. So what took place when Jesus died? It was quite simply this. He said, I'll take that. I'll take that upon the cross. Okay, Satan, what have you got against Nathan? (laughs) You've got nothing. You've got nothing. Nathan, come on into paradise. Brilliant, guys, well done. (laughs) See, in one sense, the language is dense, but it's quite straightforward. It's quite simple. Verse 15, what goes on? Having disarmed the powers and authorities, Christ made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He's disarmed them. Satan, what have you got, Satan, against Nathan? Nothing. Nothing. Okay. And this picture of this, um, the Lord Jesus, he made a public spectacle of the evil powers and authorities. It means it's open to shame. The point there is, that is true of every single Christian believer. And you need to know that. There's no secret. Jesus wants that to be declared from the rooftops. If you're a Christian, the law that stood against you has been taken away and he has died in your place. It's an open secret. It's been paraded publicly. So back to verse 13. God made you alive with Christ by forgiving us all our sins through his work on the cross. Full spiritual life flows through every believer. You're united to him. You have God's fullness by his spirit. Jesus Christ has paid for you. You cannot be separated from him. As long as you're trusting in his death in your place, he's paid for you. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, would I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin? Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Wonderful. You have it all. You have fullness in Jesus Christ. You have the fullness of God in Christ. That's wonderful. So... Don't be deceived by powerless religion. Why? Don't be deceived. Let's look at the negative. You have the fullness of God in Christ. Verse 16, therefore, therefore, don't be deceived. And there are two elements to this. Don't be judged by religious observers and don't be disqualified by mystics. You see these two warnings? So verse 16, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat and drink. Verse 18, Do not uh, let anyone who delights in false humility disqualify you. Don't let these two groups lead you astray. You have everything in Jesus Christ. Don't be taken astray by either of these two. First then, don't be deceived by, sorry, don't be judged by religious observers. 
verse 16. Now, it sounds like the Colossians are being ticked off for a number of reasons here. Therefore, uh, by the false teachers. They're being ticked off by the false teachers. Verse 16. Don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Apparently, they're eating things they're not supposed to. Or, Or with regard to religious festival. They're not keeping ceremonies that the false teachers want them to. So a couple of failings, according to the false teachers. And Paul says, don't be judged by them. Now, tangent. You need to be a little bit careful, because Paul loves discipline in the Christian life. He'd encourage us to be deeply disciplined in pursuing Jesus Christ. Here's the man, of course, who in 1 Corinthians 9 will say, everyone who wins the prize goes into strict training. Therefore, I beat my body and make it my slave, so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I beat my body to follow Christ, says Paul. Of course, elsewhere in Ephesians 5, it says, don't be drunk on wine. Don't get drunk. So what Paul is not saying to the Colossians is, hey, do what you want, guys. Go crazy. You like a drink? Have 20. You like to sleep around? Woohoo! Go for your life. He's not saying that. He's saying, don't be judged by what you eat or drink or your religious practices. Don't be judged by other people. That's what he doesn't like. The problem comes when people insist, you must not eat that food. If you're going to be a Christian, you must celebrate this particular festival of tabernacles or Pentecost or whatever it may be. It's when people insist it becomes an issue. You still get that sort of character around. Um, that's Simon Pedley, uh, who's on the keyboard tonight, who works with the students. He was telling me that uh, earlier in the year, at a Freshers' Fair at Imperial College, um, representatives of one uh, uh, central London church were going up to all the Freshers in Imperial and saying, uh, if you want to live the Christian life seriously, there is only one church, you can come to our church. All of the other churches in London are liberal, and they don't follow God earnestly enough. If you're a serious Christian, you have to come to our church. Now, if you know Simon, he very politely... I went up and said, I'm not sure that's fair or appropriate for you to be saying that. Um, I'm, in a, I'm on the staff of Christ Church Mayfair. We're not perfect, but we do try our very best to earnestly follow the Lord. To which the guy said, we need to quit. You need to resign your job and join our church in order to, um, to push on. Now that sort of, what? What's, what's that? That sort of level of, dogmatism, there is only one place you can be. Now, curiously, I looked at their website, which is good in many ways. I looked at their travel directions, and it gave directions how you could get to their church on the, on the Sunday, on the tube. It did come with a caveat, you can only use the tube on a Sunday to come to our church. If you use it for any other reason, that is sinful, because you're not keeping the Sabbath. Now, you slightly tie yourself in knots with that one, couldn't you? The, um, what if you got off a stop early by mistake? You'd be in all sorts of trouble. Anyway, anyway. So don't be judged by religious observers. It seems in particular that these false teachers had an obsession with food and some, uh, a return to Old Testament festivals, new moon celebrations, Sabbath days. And Paul says, look, these are a shadow, verse 17. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality is found in Christ. Why go to a shadow when you can have the reality? And what a beautiful spring day. Can we call it spring? I don't know. What a beautiful afternoon this afternoon. If you're in the park, you know, the sun's shining. Imagine you're there with a friend. You, it's a friend you haven't seen for a while, and you see them in the park, and you ignore them and just talk to their shadow. 
You just completely blank the friend. You say, shh, I want to meet this person. And you... <laughs> um, what, is, what is that? Don't go back to the shadow. Not when you have the reality, says Paul. You have everything you need in Jesus Christ. Why go to a sort of ascetic religious practices? Why would you... Don't do that. You're united to Christ. Love him. Not the shadows of the Old Testament. They were useful in teaching us about him. But now you've got him. Don't go back. So be, um, don't be judged by religious observers. And then don't be disqualified by mystics. Last thing, 18 to 19. So here are people who, well, they're a bit different. They insist you need to have certain spiritual experiences. Verse 18. So do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he's seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. So here are people who seem to insist on false humility or again, it's literally self-abasement. So it could be humility, it could be denying yourself certain physical things, you know, denying certain foods, it's not really clear. But certainly their emphasis is upon angelic experiences. What's their authority for teaching people? Well, it's very clear. They go into, verse 18, such a person goes into great detail about what he's seen. Great detail. I don't know if you've ever been to a conference or heard this sort of Christian speaker. Just, there's no Bible. There's no words from Jesus, but just the endless anecdotes, which he then gives us a model to follow. God told me to move to Moscow, and I did, and he blessed me. And he told me to marry Martha, and I did, and he blessed me. And he told me to make up a ministry, and he did, and he blessed me. And he tells you to give me money, and, and you must, and he'll bless you. Ta-da! Uh, it doesn't always work quite like that way, but it's just the endless stream of experience and anecdotes. And there's no voice of Jesus there, just his own experiences. And he goes on in great detail about them, about what God has said to him, and says, you'll have the same. Of course, by contrast, the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, I was taken up to heaven, but I'm not telling you what I saw. These people, they go on. They go on and on and on. Great length. Paul says the problem is, verse 18 still, it's pride. His spiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. And crucially, do you see the outcome of this sort of Christian living. Verse 19. He's lost connection with the head. Gosh. So there's a sort of Christian living that just focuses purely on experiences. I did this and God told me this and I had this vision of that and he did this. And actually this teacher, I guess technically they're they're not a Christian anymore. They've left Christ behind. He's the head and he's just Cut off. Terrible. That can happen, says Paul. Don't be deceived. Don't be disqualified by them. Oh, they'll tell you you're missing out. You're lacking so much. I've had this vision and this experience. And and there's no Jesus there, really. I mean, they'll, they'll use his name endlessly. But there's no voice of Jesus speaking there. Now, in one sense, what's the appeal of that? It makes me ask that sort of question. What's the appeal? 
Because you can sit here tonight and think, okay, we have fullness in Jesus Christ. Or, I don't think I'd ever drift away. Why do people chase after sort of ascetic denial? Right, I'm going to make life really hard and go without water for a year and then become super spiritual. Well, not quite that extreme, of course. But I'll go without certain foods. I'm going to chase after these experiences. Why do people do these things? Well, at least two reasons strike me. One is there's a zeal to know Jesus better. I think. So genuine, keen Christians, they wanted intimacy with Jesus Christ. And someone says there's a fast track. You don't have to, you don't have to work at your godliness. You can just go on the, you just go on the bypass and, and it's much faster. And that's really appealing, isn't it? You don't have to work at the faith. So I think for some people it's zeal. It's enthusiasm. They want to be godly. And so they're taken in by that because they think it's a shortcut. Related, the second thing I think for many of us, perhaps more common here perhaps, frustration with normal Christian living because sometimes the Christian life's hard. And you can think to yourself, I'm tired. And we looked last time at chapter 1, verse 29. And I have to labor. I have to struggle. That's normal Christian living, yes, with his energy working you, but labor, struggling. Well, that sounds like labor and struggling. I don't like that. And these guys over here, they're saying, oh, I can be godly and grow in godliness really quickly and grow in intimacy really quickly. It doesn't need to take time. I just need to go to this meeting, meet that guru. That's quite appealing, isn't it? And that's why Paul says, look, don't be deceived. Don't be taken in. Don't be disqualified by these people. They'll cut you off from Jesus, potentially. Look, I don't it's not my role to judge the hearts of people? Of course not. But if you go into some of the Christian bookshops today, it's just the latest fad. Be it the prayer of Jabez, or dream catching, or angel feathers from Bethel, or full freedom prayer ministry, or whatever it is. It's the latest thing, and it's very well-intentioned. And people who are keen are taken in. People who are teaching should know better. But Paul says, watch out. It's very appealing. Yeah, I know. But don't be disqualified. Don't be deceived because... Well, let's ask some questions as we finish. Have these new practices helped restrain ungodly passions? Verse 23, no. Such regulations indeed of appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Will any of these practices help you grow in godliness? No. No, they will not, says Paul. Another question. Have the mystical experiences, these of verse 18, have they led to a greater intimacy, a higher experience of God? Verse 19, no. Now they'll cut you off from him. So be careful. So there's, the, in one sense, the, the warning at the heart of Colossians. Next week we get to the turning point, chapter 3, and he'll say, okay, now how do we grow in the Christian life? And it's a lot more positive than there onwards. But he gives this warning. You have everything. If you're a Christian here tonight, can you hear me? You have the fullness of God in Christ. You have it. Every spiritual blessing in him. So don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by a powerless religion. So is this how it always feels? Is it always like this? Does it mean it gets no better than I'm feeling tonight until I get to glory? No. No, because 
It can vary how much you enjoy fullness in Christ. Remember, we looked at the very beginning, chapter 2, verse uh, 7. Paul expects as we grow in Christ, we'll be built up in him, strengthened in the faith, and overflowing with thankfulness. This transformation, you can enjoy the relation, you can enjoy your union with Christ more or less. Think of those metaphors for, for being united to him. Um, Vine and branches, head, body, or perhaps most of all, husband and wife. It's a very helpful metaphor because there are marriages which are rubbish. They're just mutual coexistence. And they may sleep in the same bed or they may have got beyond that and sleep in separate rooms. They're married, they're united in one sense, but you know what, there's not a lot going on. And there are marriages which are fantastic And they love one another and they enjoy one another and there is vibrancy and laughter and thanksgiving for one another. And you get Christians in both of those sort of categories as well. United to Jesus Christ, but you know what? There's not a lot going on. There's not a lot of conversation. Or Christians are united to Christ and they are being transformed. And there is great joy and you can move from one to the other. You know, recently talking to a couple two and a half years ago, at the point of divorce, sat down with them and heard them say, I hate her, I hate him. Now, three weeks ago, how's marriage? It's great. It's great. We love being married together. Okay, you've changed. (laughs) Yeah, and you can live the Christian life that way. Not necessarily hating God, but just it's all a little bit distant. So what do we do? We go back to these truths. Go back to chapter 1, verse 15. Remind ourselves how wonderful Jesus Christ is. Remind ourselves that he's given freedom to enter glory. Remind ourselves that we have the fullness of Christ, the fullness of God in Christ in us. We have it all. Remind ourselves who he is, what he's done. Be thankful. Enjoy that. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Let's pray together. Our Father, our little minds struggle to really understand the fullness of God in Christ. Okay, the fullness, we're united to that. What's that meant to feel like? We, we don't always feel content or full in you. Would you impress these truths upon us that they are true? In him, we have every spiritual blessing. There's no need to look elsewhere. We have full forgiveness through his work upon the cross. So, Father, would we cherish these truths? Would they cause us indeed to be more rooted, to grow, to be overflowing in thankfulness to you? So they're not deceived and led astray. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.